G'day and welcome to episode 82 of the Bloke Pod. GJ's giving me the eight two symbols with his hands there. Yeah, just the two of us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. we've had a Keep bit of an old school. Yeah, had a bit of a run of late where we've had a few what? rotating guests coming through. And... Yeah, but none of them were really up to the standard of the original duo, so we decided let's go back to basics. And to, <laughs> and, to and, really, and William to really, Yeah, to yeah. really add the old school effect, the uh, the birthday boy William Hus Corgis going to be floating around as well so you might hear some scattering on the uh, wooden floor yeah, so don't so. worry it's not me it's it is actually just william yeah but uh, yeah i was i was listening to one of our old ipod for hells the other day and i at the start we sort of apologized for the fact that um it had been a while since our last ipod for hell i think it's been a while since we did anything other than an ipod for hell <laughs> i think we, had, quietly, we, we did a short burst where we were going off about the uh the uh, pungent bladder of fifa or something along those oh lines. yes that yeah that was the Matt yes. Collins one, yeah. Yes, so... But, um, look, the the reason we've been inspired to go back to more of a sporting vein, in fact, in that same Matt Collins episode, I think I did my shout-out to Stephen Smith, yes. who I said he's, he's the heir apparent to Dan's Man Crush, the official title of Dan's Man Crush. Well... I think the baton's officially been passed. He has now been officially promoted because Ryan Harris, my favourite bowler of all time uh, was forced into retirement before the start of this current Ashes series um, as I say there, there have been four now four man crushes <laughs> and that, yes that's that's a proper noun you know capitalised words there yeah. uh, Steve Waugh Mike Hussey um, now it's Steve Smith and the fourth is Ryan Harris so uh, the only bowler to have ever made the cut and look just an absolute champion of a bloke and champion of a bowler I mean if you look at his I've always thought over the last generation or so the best bowler has been Dale Stane Ryan Harris has been number two for mine yeah, I actually thought it was quite telling that Ryan, Ryan Harris and Bruce Reed ended up playing the exact same number and of tests. And of course, that's the other thing, and 27. Exact, yeah, the exact <laughs> same number of tests and the exact same number of wickets. Yeah. And it's probably a very fair comparison is, is that they, they were... They were generational bowlers in many respects, but unfortunately their bodies let them down. Yeah, and I mean, the other, you talk about that coincidence there. I think at the start of the India series last summer, Ryan Harris and Dale Stane had the exact same test bowling average. And that says it all for me. I mean, you, you hear the way people talk about Stane, uh, myself included. He'd be my all-time 11 alongside... Um, Marshall and Lily as my two quicks. Episode um, two. Yeah, callback. Um, I think, yeah, the fact that Ryan Harris was able to have, yeah, as of a, a handful of tests ago, I'm not sure how he went after that, but have the same average as the, the number one bowler of our generation pretty much says it all. It's probably fitting the, the way that he's, in many respects, ended his career with the uh, South African... Well, that's league. what I like. It means his last moment as a test cricketer was running in on one knee and knocking over Morkel to win us a series against South Africa in their, in their um, over in South Africa, the number one team in the world. Um, and I do remember sending a, a long and glowing email around after that one, which started with the line, Ryan Harris can bend me over and impregnate me anytime he wants. But that that was unbelievable in that series. I mean, he... He, he decided he, to impregnate his wife. Yeah, he said, yeah, probably, probably about the same time. Probably, just, yeah. probably a wife. He made the right call on that one. Outside. Yeah, not sure I'd be quite up to carrying a child to term these days, but... um. That that whole series in itself was just remarkable. I mean, he during that last test, he called Mitchell Johnson over at one stage and said, Mitch, feel this. You could actually feel the bits of bone 
that were floating around in his knee. Like, the bloke should have been barely been able to walk, let alone bowl. He got told before the series started he needed surgery to fix up his knee. How many blokes do you know who would go, alright, I'm just going to pop over to South Africa first and play a three-test series against the best team in the world and then you can cut me open and do whatever you want. Mm. I mean, Alan Border would approve of that. <laughs> Mentality, one hundred percent. It's that. It's that same. For the record, Alan yeah. Border gave him huge raps. Yeah. Well, of course. I mean, it, it's yeah. that. That is what the baggy green is all about. You know, you talk about Alan Border and Steve Waugh, those guys who just, st- you know, perfectly embody everything that the baggy green stands for. Ryan Harris is in that category as well. So a salute to Rhino, an absolute champion. Um, yeah, wish him all the best and happiness mm. now that he's a, a dad and everything as well. That's right. Um, and I think that he's going to have a... I expect him to have a long and successful career as a coach from here on. Let's hope so, yeah, because he's certainly... The way he bowled... I mean, you look at the other fast bowlers around the Australian squad at the moment. No one... There's no There's no one else like Rhino. You know, you'd say the two Mitchells are quite similar. You'd say... It's, yeah, it's You know, Pattinson point. and Cummins are quite similar, but... See, I would not say Rhino that they're all not... I'd say that they're all very different. Rhino had one skill that those guys don't have is, is that the ability to both attack and defend at the same time. Yeah. Is that he, he could be very, very aggressive but would very rarely leak runs at the and same time. And that was time. always Shane Warne's greatest asset, yeah. really. That's what... McGrath's... So, McGrath as well yeah. was another one who yep. was very much like that too but um, yeah. so both in terms of taking wickets and also just tying I mean, up an end and uh, and I'll, I'll never forget the ball he bowled to Alistair Cook at oh, Perth yeah. I don't think uh, that ball was virtually unplayable that I mean that's almost the ball of the century for mine you know if Warney's had the last century that's almost yeah. the best ball of this one I reckon and I just remember at the ground I was there with Dad and we were so confused because we couldn't work out that it had bowled him like no one yeah. at the ground could figure out if you watch the footage Usually, like, if you see a Yorker hit the stumps, you'll hear the... Exactly. You'll hear the roar from the crowd, as Billy's just provided uh, a rendition of. You'll hear that roar. And whereas this one, it was more just, oh, what's happened? You couldn't work out. It was... It had just clipped the top of the off stump, and he had taken yeah. off. You, live, you couldn't even tell it had bowled him. Yeah. It was that good a ball. Yes. No, but for me, I think it, there, was, there was that series. I always remember the... The tests we played over in Sri Lanka, where, I mean, winning in Asia, not exactly something that happens every day for the Aussie cricket team. He was brilliant there. But I think in particular, the the series I'll remember him for, along with that last South African <coughs> test, will always be the last Ashes series where we went over there. And, I mean, if he had played in that first test, who knows what might have happened. I was livid at the time that we had left our best bowler on the sidelines for test one. So by the time he actually got into the series, we were already 1-0 down and and in a bit of a hole but he he was still the man of the series for us after playing only four tests by probably the length of the Lord's cricket ground. He was outstanding in that series. He took top order wickets regularly with every spell and he was the only one who seemed to genuinely trouble the English batsman and it seemed to be always a question of can Rhino keep us in it? And he was just brilliant. And I remember the the one day at Lord's that I attended. Well, everything after the first ball was a bit of a shambles, but first ball he got a wicket, and that was brilliant to see. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm really happy I was there for that. Not so much for the rest of the day. 
But no, one of my all-time favourite players, an absolute champion. Yep. Only a few men can say they are official Dan Man Crushers, and he has that right. On your rhino. Rhino! Of course, a lot of other things have... Uh, other sports have wrapped up just, during just, this just a, just a few sports going on, yeah. aren't they? You know, you've just heard, the Ashes, got, you've the got British the, Open, the know, Tour de France, Wimbledon. football, Wimbledon. But I would have yeah. wind it back probably oh, about a month or so now. The NBA Finals, absolutely fascinating final series. And a first correct all, prediction. Yeah, first of all... <laughs> that doesn't get said every day around here. Yeah, actually, it's, it's actually funny. I went and had a look the other day on the ESPN site at the start of the year. They had about 40 people do their predictions. Only one tip the Golden State Warriors. There you go. Our strike record. We and had he was one, copying you. Yeah. <laughs> For the record, we had one one person do a prediction. <laughs> yeah. So fuck you, ESPN. Yeah. What we're do 90, you know? We're ninety-seven point five percent better than you yeah, are. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, but I mean, Golden State had a few lucky breaks along the way. But the the final series as well. I, I'm going to give a massive shout out to Steve Kerr because he did something that not a lot of people would do in the game three with his team down two one. He completely deviated. That, hang on, wouldn't that be game four then? Game, yes, after game three. So before <laughs> game four, between game three and game four, did the ballsiest decision probably anyone's done in an NBA final series. Benched Andrew Bogut, who'd been their starting centre for pretty much the entire year and was an integral part of everything that they do offensively. And basically went to what we call a small ball lineup, where everybody's 6'8 and below. Yeah, small. Yeah, <laughs> you small know, in NBA like foot taller than but us, but... Not playing a centre and going with basically playing three guards and two forwards. Mm. And it's a bit more successful than Essendon not playing a ruckman under James Hurd, it's fair to say. Yes, that's right. Um, Yeah, Cleveland didn't take it as an insult, but it's amazing in that so much of the game historically in the NBA, it's about matchups, and this is a ballsy way. Mm. So basically, it means one of your matchups you're giving away. That's exactly right. And that what they were doing, the, the beauty of what they were doing was the five guys that they were playing can all shoot really well from the outside. So they're pulling the Cleveland defenders away from the basket, mm. the bigger guys away from the basket, and creating offense through that mechanism. And it was fascinating because it puts Cleveland in an interesting predicament. It's like, well, do we try to match mm. or do we or do we stick with our own strategy? And they kind of half-assed it both ways. They probably should have stuck with what they were doing. They got run off the floor in game four. Game five, they stayed, they, they went back to what they were doing and they tried to match it for a little while with, with what um, Golden State were doing. But they didn't have the same cattle mm. of those sizes and those positions and it didn't quite work for them. And then game six yeah, ended up coming. So make the change, win three games straight. The other thing that I think is worth pointing out is that for the, for the seven of the 11 judges who didn't vote LeBron James MVP of the final series... Shame on you. I heard, I read somewhere after the series, I heard some reference to the ML, uh, to the NBA final series MVP. Yeah. And I saw this name and I went, yeah. it wasn't LeBron James? Yeah, was, what the fuck is going on It was actually here? the guy guarding LeBron James. I, how um, did that... I heard like yeah. the first three games he broke some sort of record for like the most points shot well, in a final series or something. He averaged a tri- he averaged a triple double throughout yeah. the playoff series, which in itself is amazing. But um, the cold hard reality is LeBron James doesn't play in that series. They get swept and they get swept quite badly. He he pretty much won them games the two, the, the, yeah. the two games two with games. a little bit of help from from Matthew Delvadova. Yeah, but for the most part, it was LeBron. LeBron almost won them game five single. 
single-handedly. Mm. He was just making shot after shot. During it sounds that a bit game. like Ryan Harris nearly winning a yeah. test in the last That's right. Uh, yeah, is yeah. he was yeah he was he was phenomenal throughout the series. And yeah, look, he, the thing that people would look at and say his shooting percentage wasn't that flash, but to be perfectly look at honest, the number of points in total. Well, there's that, but it's also look at who he's playing with. Their two best <laughs> players were out injured. Yeah. And, you know, to be honest, LeBron James' contested shot is probably better than an uncontested shot from most of the other players. And, I mean, the other thing that surprised me about it was surely as... With the King James factor around it, he was, he's the sort of guy who you think would it'd be easier for him to win a medal when he's not actually the best yeah. than for him to not get awarded it when he is the best. Yeah. I, I find that yeah, incredible. Yeah, and it's kind of funny. It's a bit of a backhanded compliment giving the MVP to the guy that was essentially guarding him. Well, guarded him most of the time anyway. Mm. And because he he was very, very influential, um, Andre Guadala, in reducing his effectiveness while he was guarding him. Yeah. LeBron was genuinely doing a lot of his scoring when other players were guarding him. Mm. But um, Andre Iguodala was a guy who came in in place of Bogut, so he'd started on the bench. Throughout the entire year, he's actually the first playoff, uh, finals playoff MVP to A, score less than 10 points per game during the regular season, Mm. and B, not start a single game. During the regular season. That's how ballsy the coaching decision was. And, you know, congratulations. Steve Kerr's first year as a coach. Mm. I mean, to to have the, to have the, the, the you know. Cojones. Yes. <laughs> yeah, the guts and determination to yeah. to steer, to, to veer away. They were a very successful team during the regular season, mm. 67 and 15. To suddenly change things up to complete, the Yeah, to be series. willing to change things up in that particular way. Mm. Um, it's a bold strategy. It is a bold strategy, and yeah, uh, full credit to uh, to him for doing that. But yeah, I, I guess my my biggest frustration from that, I mean, it was the the other thing was they were fantastic games to watch. Yeah, the contest was just gripping from all facets. Is mm. that basically this one guy trying to have to do it single handedly? Yeah. Hadn't really seen anything quite like that since Michael Jordan in the late nineteen eighties before he started winning championships. It was a very similar type of thing, and LeBron did absolutely everything he could and yeah to, I personally I thought for him not to get the finals MVP was a slap in the face yeah. and you know that's coming from someone who's not necessarily yeah, a huge exactly. LeBron lover yeah that's right yes oh well I'll, I'll jump in now and then say it must be the year for our first year managers over in American sports because as we sit here I'm one game in after the all-star break in the baseball the Minnesota Twins have the second best record in the American League right now having pretty much been predicted to finish last by all and sundry before the season started um, and having yeah been given no hope whatsoever of actually competing for a playoff spot right now as things currently stand yeah I think we're a couple of games a couple of games clear in the wild card spot but I will I will also make a bit of a complaint and that is two years ago if we were in this position as the as the team with the second best record in the American League we would have been set for a playoff series you know more or less guaranteed the problem we have this year is that we happen to be in the same division the central as the team with the best record in the American League and that's the Kansas City Royals fucking Kansas City but does it doesn't so, help that the AL East everybody's within about five <laughs> games of yeah, each other at the moment that too but I mean my point is that with the second best record in the American League we are only guaranteed of a wild card start now a couple yeah. of years ago that would have been fine now with this stupid new system where you actually get two key teams receiving a wild card in each um, division and then playing off in a single game for the fourth spot in the playoffs. 
I hate that system. It is so stupid. Why did they change it? And the, the argument will be, oh, yeah, to bring more interest and to create more money. Having a one-off toin cost game to decide the fourth playoff spot is ridiculous. A toin cost game? A toin cost game. You've not heard me use that before? No, that's, that's a Dan Yeah. That's a Dan Jackson <laughs> I'm just repeating right it. So just, like, no, that, yeah, to, that wasn't an error in the it, recording. Just to make <laughs> yeah, it clear that that's was what you verbatim. <laughs> yeah. So it's not I, quite sung in cheek, just for the record. <laughs> yeah. But I think that, particularly in baseball, where so much of it hinges on who your pitcher is in a particular game, to bring something down to a one-game playoff, I think it's ridiculous. And even if they made it a three-game series, that would be so much better. Because what's going to happen now is that if you come up against a team who's got the... Uh, what's the pitching award? Is it the Cy Young? Cy Young. Yeah, yeah, the Cy Young pitcher. Then even if the rest of their starting rotation is shit, they will still win that one game. You can't really Reduce something in baseball to a one-game playoff like that. I don't think anyway. Particularly not when it's been done differently in the past. Like it's it's such a it's almost like a footytips.com.au site improvement this season, which has just made things so much worse. This is the same sort of change. Yeah. You're just making well, it worse. That's all about money. That's the reason why they did it. But, but I don't even see how they would make that much more money from it. It's just an extra one game. I mean, I, I yeah. <laughs> It's it's really funny. I'd like to see them institute. It's it's tough because of the fact that you play so many games within your division. Yeah, that's the thing that hurts. Um, so they don't want to highlight the fact that if you're actually a, a dominant team in a really shitty division, that you don't get a significant leg up as a consequence of mm. that. But like even out the division stuff a little bit more. I mean, I think we play the Yankees like twenty eight times or something crazy like that. Um, it's like a bus. There'll be another series along. Yeah, the that's <laughs> exactly right. It's like if you miss if you miss the Red Sox yeah. Yankees going wait a week yeah. <laughs> um, is that look do what they do in the NBA is that they you have your specific divisions you have your NL and your AL mm. top four qualify yeah. no matter like, no matter how it breaks down yeah. top X qualify so if you if you're in an awesome division and I mean look the AL East in the past has been a lot yeah. like that where I mean, let's face it in the past when there were only four teams go through you could guarantee it would be winner of the Central winner of the West and top two from the East yeah. it was always like that yeah that's right um, so, so you I'd like to see that I'd like to see even out the games a bit more so you play in your conference, you're going to play the same amount of games, mm. roughly the same amount of games to across each yeah. team. So you play each team a similar amount of time, so that the the nuances of the draw, so to speak, don't influence who finishes high and who finishes low. Yeah. And across 162 games, if you're the best team, that's going to come out. Mm. Is that you know that the point you make about a one-off thing is very very true. But you know, <laughs> one one things you know it's it, it can be an error. 162 is a trend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So yeah. Full credit to the twins, but yeah, as usual, the overriding uh, response is just fucking Kansas City. <laughs> as is always the way. It's been a while since we've done a hero of the week, and um, well, this week at the ESPYs, there's a candidate who head and shoulders stood out above everyone else, and of course, I'm talking about UFC fighter Ronda Rousey. But it's better that I let ESPN explain exactly what happened rather than than. I guess proclaim my own thing. So, reading directly from the article, Ronda Rousey felt disrespected and waited more than a year to take a shot at Floyd Mayweather. Ronda Rousey said she patiently waited more than a year to exact her revenge on Floyd Mayweather after the boxer 
when asked about the UFC champion, said he didn't know who he is. Rousey told reporters she had felt disrespected by Mayweather's comments and she took aim at his domestic violence record after receiving the ESPY for Best Fighter, for which Mayweather was also nominated. I wonder how Floyd feels being beat by a woman for once, Rousey said. I'd like to see him pretend to not know who I am now. Rousey said she'd been waiting for the right opportunity to call out Mayweather. I know for damn sure he knew who I was, Rousey told reporters after winning the ESPY award. He was running against me for best fighter that year and he had signed MMA fighters so his feigned ignorance was meant to really be a snarky remark to me. I don't let these kinds of things slide but I'm also a patient girl. I'm not the kind of chick you make snarky remarks about. I waited a whole year to say something. And you know what? If I didn't win Best Fighter this year, I would have waited two years or three years. It wasn't the first time Rousey publicly called out Mayweather's history of domestic violence. In May, Rousey said, I don't think that me and him would ever fight unless we ended up dating. Sensational. I salute you, Ronda Rousey. Well done. Pitbull and no, a few Pitbull. of these other things through the iPod for yeah. help. Yeah. yeah, but we're gonna go back to flogging that dead horse again because one of the things at the moment now the new aspect of it is that we get to hear the third umpire's voice and we get to see him go through the process. Presumably, that's in order to stop howlers like the Kawaja one from the last series happening so we can hear and see exactly what they're seeing and what they're thinking and what they're commenting on. Now, LBWs, there is one. There is one aspect of the LBW rule. It can't have hit the bat first. So for every LBW referral, the first thing they check is whether the ball's hit the bat. However... Oh, isn't it more important that the ball's hitting the wickets? Well, well, that's for one thing. But I would like to point out that at the moment, it seems obligatory to... Even if you see the first replay and the ball's about three inches from the bat... All right, yeah, can we go through and just look at hotspot as well? Oh, look, it's still three inches from the bat. There's still nothing there. Yes. All right, well, can we go through and look at real-time snicker as well? No, 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 no. RTS. RTS, that's right. RTS. You arsey bastards. If it hasn't hit the bat, it hasn't hit the bat. So often now, we are looking at hotspot and RTS reviews for a good, maybe a minute, 45 seconds to a minute with every referral, when there's no fucking way in hell that the ball has hit the bat. Now, why not just skip them all together? Oh, but we'd hate to then go back later and find out it did hit the bat. But it hasn't hit the bat! You've seen that from the first replay. Just back yourself on that one. And if it's clear it hasn't, do away with the other extraneous bullshit. Which brings me to the second point, the ball tracker. This should be number one. This yes. should be what you start with. Thank there you. There was a one-day game last year between Pakistan and New Zealand where they spent literally about three minutes trying to work out whether the guy had hit the ball. By the time they went to the ball tracker, it had pitched outside leg stump. The ball came down, boom, green, not out. Now... Correct me if I'm wrong, but one of the issues facing Test cricket today is that it's a very long, potentially boring, drawn-out sport. You know, you've got 30 overs to get through in a session. Teams are struggling to get through their overrates. Here's an idea of how we might speed it up. Start the LBW reviews with the ball tracker because straight away you will be able to tell, all right, is there any reason here why it's already not out straight away? Or is there any reason here why the umpire's call will already definitely 
definitely stand. Look at that first, then perhaps go spend your two and a half minutes rolling back and forth on Hotspot and, and RTS and that. But let's get the really important one, the deal breaker one, out of the way first. Done, yeah. dusted, and then we can move on if it's already not out. Ooh. There's just so much time wasted with it. And this is the other bit. I would like to now promote my own product, which is the DJRS. Now, the big difference with the DJRS is that it ignores the umpire's original on-field decision. And rather than having a series of umpire's call versus out versus not out, what I propose it would do is it looks at where it pitches, it looks at where it hits the batsman, it looks at where it's impacting the stumps, it factors that all in and then says on the balance of probability is this out or not out, a single verdict. So for ones like that ridiculous decision that Stephen, the decision that Stephen Smith got yesterday where a pubic hair shaped uh, sized pit of the ball happened to be just impacting upon the, the imaginary line between the stumps and therefore pitching in line was umpire's call let's just say all right looking at all this looking at where it pitched where it hit him and where it hit the stumps there is too much doubt on that one it's not out same with these balls which are clipping the very top of the leg bail and then get given out or not out based on that the biggest problem with the drs right now is that it's not trying to get the correct decision it's trying to do whatever it can to support the on-field umpire's decision and Quite frankly, I, the Steve Smith one, I think Damasini gave him out for the shot rather than what actually happened. The fact that Don't he, try and get into Damasini's I'm just going to say, but the fact that he even thought that that pitched in one when it's barely touching I mean, the it thing. wasn't even... There wasn't even... You couldn't even say, all right, here's the bit of the yeah. ball that's in line. As that's far right. as I can tell, that was almost like a tangent. Yeah. The edge of the ball and the edge of the blue strip. Yeah. Yeah. Is it, that, that should never have been umpire's call. And yeah. as I, I... I think I made the comment that a, a drug DRS operator was supporting a, a shithouse yeah. decision on the field and that's what it looked and like and that's that's the problem is that DRS first and foremost is trying to support the decision on the field yeah. rather than make a decision itself but, but it's, it's, it's the same thing with goal review in the AFL it's like if my, my belief on this is look if you can't do it properly and you can't do it definitively just don't fucking do mm. it and that's why I, I think mean, for LBWs... People get carried away. They got carried away with thinking about DRS purely because of the, the fact of runouts. Yeah. And stumpings. stumpings. Where it's very Ones conclusive. where it's a line. Yeah. Done or dusted. Yeah. LBW has always been more imprecise than that. And the other thing is, LBW historically, it's always been, if in doubt, give the batsman not out. Yeah. Whereas now, I reckon someone like Shane Watson, for instance, everyone talks about how often he gets out LBW, criticise him for that. I reckon what is actually causing that is that when he was coming through the ranks in shield cricket, a number of these balls which were hitting him would have been given not out because there would have been enough doubt in the umpire's mind that it might have been going yeah. over the top. It might have been going down the inside. It might have hit him outside the line. Now, yeah, now oh, if yeah. the umpire's giving him out, oh, and it's just clipping the top of the leg bail, oh, well, that's still out then. I don't think well, that's I think it, right. I, I think LBWs should have to be almost plumb and I actually to get think given. That, I actually think the umpires make decisions sometimes on the off the back of, well, they've got but reviews. I left. think they've changed their decision-making. I think yeah. LBWs in particular, they've become more likely to give them out. But back in the past, you had to be pretty plumb to get given out for LBWs, yeah. and I preferred it that way. I thought that was a good part of the game. Whereas now, they seem a lot quicker to pull the trigger on LBWs knowing, oh, well, it'll back me up because it'll say it's at least clipping the stumps. Mm. And that brings me to my final point, this clipping the stumps bit. And that's why I think I'm promoting the DJRS. 
If a ball clips the top of the leg bail, is the batsman out or not out? Yeah. He's out. He's out bowled. The ball is hitting the stumps. So why then, on an umpire's call of not out, when we see that 49% of the ball is hitting the stumps, why is that not out? Yeah, If the ball tracking technology is worth a pinch of shit, then that ball is going to impact the stumps. The bales will be off. It's going to be out. That's exactly right. They have... you have to definitively know exactly how much of the ball is going to have to hit the stumps in order to dislodge bar. And yeah, let's be honest, it's probably what, 4 5%? Yeah, exactly. So for me, if we are going to... I hate the, um, I hate the Schrodinger's cat side of this as well, where everything ties back to the umpire's yeah, decision. That, is yeah, that exactly. two exact things can be ruled differently on the field. But on the base of the umpire's decision, that's what dictates it. I mean, there was a exactly really like, good one exact yesterday. Same situation, one's out, yeah. one's not out, but because of the, the you see the exact same thing and you see two completely different results. There's it a should really be that way. One. There should be precision attached to it. It's all. It's either always out, out or, or it's not, always out. not yeah. out. Earlier in the day with Steve Smith, he was hit more or less adjacent and the ball was going on to hit f- about, you know, two-thirds of the ball was missing the stumps, but I a think, third was hitting the I stumps. I think that was actually Peter Neville. Oh, was it? Okay. Yeah. But there was, there was another decision where it was pitching 100% in line and the ball was, a decent chunk of the ball was clipping the stumps. Yeah. Now, you look at that one and you look at the Steve Smith one tell me which one was more out yeah that's exactly right but because right. the Neville one was given not out it stayed not out because the Smith one was given out it stayed out yeah. that's why we need to move to the DJRS which looks at everything ignores the on-field umpire's decision and just says out or not out mm. okay it's pitching in line or it's hitting him j- maybe just a bit outside or it's only clipping the top of the stumps alright that's not out there's enough doubt there mm. you know just take the umpire's original call completely out of the equation because all we're doing right now is we're not trying to get the right decision we're trying to uphold the original decision and that's not what the objective should be yep i i could not agree more so Gigi, what would you say is the worst sweater on television right now <laughs> well i think R- ricky ponting's bringing daryl summers back yeah, yeah. <laughs> and right now we just don't know how to act yeah <laughs> My God, the Ricky Ponting sweater on that Swiss head. The other, th- I mean, I don't think we need to specify. I think everyone already <laughs> yeah. knows what we're talking about, mate. I mean, the thing it brings to mind to me is the um, the back of the the Late Show DVD, which says something like, "It's a wonderful collection," which, if nothing else, will remind you just how fucking awful fashion was in the early nineties. Yeah, it look it looks like that same sort of yeah. Fashion I, I prowess. Think, I, yeah, I think Ricky dived well and truly into the back of the old uh, wardrobe to find that bait. Yeah, my God. Yeah. I wonder what the uh, the thinking was at Swiss behind that. It's like, how does this sweater actually help our sales here? Yeah. <laughs> do you reckon they instructed him to wear it, or do you reckon that's just from a Ricky Ponding's own personal collection? He just showed up for the ad wearing that and, <laughs> and said, and nobody I'm wearing had this, the... or I'm yeah. walking. This yeah. is a deal breaker. Yeah. <laughs> and nobody had the guts to, to put inside so really. Really? Yeah. Really? Do you really want to wear that? Yeah. You sure? I'm sure the first time they played it back to the client, there was just like a spitting out of mouth for drink. Yeah. <laughs> Get wardrobe in here. Yeah. <laughs> what the fuck is that? So, yeah, he insisted on the, it. The ad's okay, but the sweater? Yeah. Really? Uh, and the other thing, someone pointed out to me the other day, the shirt collar folded ever so meticulously underneath it as yeah. well. It's Yeah, or just part of the ensemble. <laughs> Yeah, that, that's a fucking awful sweater, punter. Take yeah. some time to think about it, mate. Yeah, that's right. Swiss have probably got a vitamin for that.
Now, while we're on the subject of bad ads, the Ricky Ponting one, we've mentioned the sweater and that, the Danny Green Retrovision ad. Now, I've got no problem with this ad until the last two seconds. He's getting on the stales, he's, you know, toasting his bread, he's using the blender, he's doing all this other stuff, using all these retrovision appliances, that, that's fine. Now, when he sits down on the couch, says, ah, retrovision, you've got me sorted, and clicks the TV button, you can hear, clearly hear the television go from on to off. <laughs> He clearly switches the television off. You can hear the TV in the background. He sits down and goes, you've got me covered. And he switches it off. Now, now, now why, GJ? Why would he plug himself down, start smiling, and switch the TV off? Pay attention to detail, Retrovision ad producers. Be better. Get yourself sorted. <laughs> For fuck's sake.